Anthony Scaramucci is a known quantity on Wall Street. The founder of Skybridge Capital hosts a big conference every year in Las Vegas called SALT. He runs like $12 billion of other people's money. And he took over Wall Street Week, the television franchise. It now airs on Fox Business Network. But Anthony, who many of his friends call the mooch, has made the most waves this year with his ardent public support for Donald Trump's presidential campaign. He's one of Trump's economic advisors. Though he's not alone, that makes him kind of a rare breed on Wall Street, which is mostly with her, that is, with Hillary Clinton. With just days to go, I figured it might be worth having Anthony pop by Times Square and talk about what it's like working with the Donald. Be prepared, Anthony is a very good talker. And he gets around, not least because he's chilling a new book, Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole. But he did reveal a few interesting tidbits. For instance, he said backing Trump has not made his life among the financial elite very easy. He has even seen some pressure on the hedge fund business he runs. Anyway, take a listen to the mooch. How did you get into the political arena? I mean, you are a self-described baby boomer who didn't who didn't focus on all this stuff yeah. for many years. Like now, you're here. You are so, one of so the senior advisors to Trump. We're, and, we're, I mean, this is a weird evolutionary process in life. So, so. I always thought I'd be in business. And if you had said to me, Anthony, you're graduated from Harvard Law School, it's 1989, what are you going to do? I'm going to be a partner at Goldman Sachs. I just mm-hmm. got a job at Goldman Sachs, so of course I'm going to be a partner there. And then what are you going to do after you're a partner? Well, I'm going to make gajillions of dollars, and then I'll probably retire by the age of 45. That's how silly and superficial my whole career planning process was. So 18 months into Goldman Sachs, I'm fired. Uh, and the reason I'm fired is that what is that what it was 18 months? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly. I mean, because you know I'm like yeah. what like an idiot savant with like memory and dates and stuff. So I was I was hired on August 14th, 1989. That's I right was, out of Harvard Law. Right out of Harvard Law. I had two months to take the bar exam. I failed the July 1989 bar exam by one multiple choice question. So if you have lawyers listening to New this, New York thing, or Boston or New, 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 York, York. New York, yeah, they can feel my pain. And, 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 and lawyers out there, I failed by one multi-state question. Okay, <laughs> so you have to know how much, how painful that was. So then I tried to take it again without studying, failed it again, and I said, okay, I got to have to study for this at some point in my life and pass it. So now I tabled that. So I'm hired on August 14th, 1989. I'm fired February 1st, 1991. Brutal day for me. It's a Friday night. Go home. I've got $100,000 of school debt plus. I feel miserable. My social status is now evaporating on me in my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. I'd gone to Harvard Law School, and I lost my first job due to, you know, they blamed it on structural, uh, you know, restructuring and that sort of nonsense. What, depart- what department were you I in? I was in the real estate investment banking okay. division. And so I was just terrible. I was terrible at the spreadsheets, terrible at the Lotus 123. You're probably old enough to remember that, mm, which was a precursor to Excel. Yep. Terrible. And so now I'm looking for a job. Somebody tells me there's a job offer opening at Goldman Sachs. So one of the lessons of the new book that I wrote is be nice to people that fire you. Okay, you, gotta, you can't take it personally. You can't have a grudge. Right. You may need their help. I call my old boss that fired me. I said, you like me. I just happened to be stinky stink at that job. Mm-hmm. Can you help me get this other job? He said, yes. So I got rehired into Goldman Sachs. So the first seven years of my career, I'm at Goldman. And which division brought I'm now you in, in the I'm now in the high net worth brokerage division okay. that they were calling private wealth management or private client services. But that's a euphemism for brokerage. Right. You know, we were commission-based brokers. And we were in a raging bull market. Uh, that was the mid-90s. And so now I'm running a brokerage book inside of Goldman Sachs with one partner. And we now think that we're Julian Robertson and George Soros. And we're going to leave and start our own hedge fund company. So on December 1st, 1996, I leave and I start a hedge fund business. 
have no involvement in politics whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, did I write maybe one check to Senator Al D'Amato as a favor to one of my bosses once? I remember writing the check because it was a painful $1,000 at a time where I didn't have any money. Plus, he lost in the end to Hillary Clinton. No, he lost to Schumer. He lost Schumer, to Schumer. Schumer. Yeah, 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 he lost to Schumer. So, you know, so look, I mean, if you remember, Moynihan retired and Clinton ran against Rick Lazio. And then right. she beat uh, right, right. Uh, KT McFarlane after that. But anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm getting my New York yeah. Italian politicians right. Right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, 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 so I don't even know these New York Italian politicians. So, so now I'm trying to build my business. We have a very good start. Don't confuse brains of the bull market as entrepreneurs are making a lot of mistakes. But the market is rising, and so we're doing well. And we do well enough through the 2000, you know, post-Y2K internet debacle where we have a pretty nice-sized business. Mm -hmm. At the end of 2001, we have a billion, $100 million under management, and Newberger Berman wants to buy our business. 9-11 comes. They pay a discount for the business. We sell it, go to work at Newberger Berman. No involvement in politics. Mm -hmm. Now I'm, I'm gravitating uh, to Lehman Brothers as a result of that sale. And then 2005, after I fulfill my contract, I go to Dick Fold. Guys at, at Lehman, I said, I'd like to leave and start a new firm, which ultimately became Name Oh, because didn't Rich. they buy Newberger? They did. Le Lehman Brothers? Yeah, so I sold my business right. to Newberger. And then Newberger Lehman. got bought by Lehman. Right. I, I then left Lehman in 2005, March 7, 2005, to start Skybridge. No involvement in politics. Of course, there wasn't Newberger run by a Bush uh, family. No, that's later. Yeah, that's later. Judge okay. George Herbert Walker Bush. Right. Now, I had worked with George. Uh, I'm sorry. He's George Herbert Walker, no Bush. He's right. George Herbert Walker, like the 32nd or something mm -hmm. like that. And he's a terrific <laughs> guy. 32nd. Well, you know, he's yeah, the, yeah, I, yeah. George, if you're listening, you know, you're probably the 34th. I just wanted to cut it back to. <laughs> so he's a terrific guy. I worked with him at Goldman. He was in GSAM. He came over to Lehman after I left. When they went through their bankruptcy, they spun him and Newberger out to create right. that. And he's done a phenomenal job for Newberger. Newberger's a great firm. Yeah. So I'm building Skybridge. We go what through was the, the idea with, with Skybridge when you, when you, when you pulled off? Yeah, you the idea was an abject, abysmal failure. I was going to go into the hedge fund seeding business. Uh, my business plan was uh, clients would give me money. We'd identify early-stage hedge funds. We'd give those early-stage hedge funds a limited partnership investment in exchange for equity ownership in their GDP. So we would take a revenue share from them, and we would pass that revenue share on to our clients. So you were Looks phenomenal so you on paper. get part of the carry. Correct. Right. So it's almost like venture capitalism for hedge funds. It looks fantastic on paper. Hmm. Problem is it's very hard business to execute because you've got to get the first two or three. It's like being in venture capital – and you got to hit the first two or three right, hit jackpots. you got to get Amazon and Google and Facebook in the first couple right. of, of investments. It's not going to work. But we were doing okay. So we go 05, 06, 07, and then we start rocking because of the crisis, you know, the, the failure of Bear Stearns in March of 08. Right. And it's, okay, so now while that's happening, a couple of my buddies, uh, Brian Mathis, who's very close to uh, then-Senator Obama, I went to law school with Barack Obama, now President Obama, mm -hmm. and a lot of his friends. I was a couple years ahead of these guys in law school. They reach out to me and they say, hey, um, Barack is running. We'd like your help. I said, okay, I'll go meet the guy. I go to the uh, university club, see the, 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 uh, the senator, and we're joking with each other. I said, hey, listen, I said, Senator, I said, I'm about to write you a check. I said, we don't really know each other that well. I said, but uh, I want to be able to tell all my friends that you and I knew each other in law school. Are you cool with that? He says, hey, 
if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it right back to Hawaii. I thought that was really funny. Okay, so yeah, and, and the guy has the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Okay, he's a and it, listen, whatever you think of his policies, and I'm not a big fan of some of the policies, although I am a big fan of the progressive nature of the social policies. You know, I'm a gay rights activist. I write checks to the American Unity Pact. Any Republican that is open to marriage equality and the women's issues, they get uh, financial support from me and that and that pack. So now he wins, and I bundle for him. Mm-hmm. So, and I was a lifelong Repu- I was a lifelong moderate Republican prior to that. Up? I grew up on Long Island. My dad was a uh, construction worker, and then he got a desk job as he got a little older. He started in a union. He worked forty-two years for a small construction company. Never went to college. Mm-hmm. Mom's a housewife. Went to a very good public school system. Uh, when I got into Tufts, my parents thought it was spelled T-O-U-G-H-S, okay? And you can ask them because they're still alive. That's funny. 80 and 81. And so— Have you written to the, 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 the Tufts University trustees, tell them to change the name? Change the name, yeah. No, it would probably be, it'd probably, probably be a sexier name if you spell <laughs> it like that. But there was a Charles Tufts. Yeah. But, but anyway, so now I have no involvement in politics. I have lightly bundled for— uh, then Senator Obama, now President Obama, uh, and he gets his start. He's in the financial crisis, and we can talk about it and analyze it. He's done some really good things. I can, I'm not I'm not one of these unbalanced. I hate him. I try to demonize people. If anything, he's done. You know, I, he's got a great family. His wife has been terrific to Deirdre and I. I have no issues with him as a human being. I just don't like a lot of the different policies. The major signal to me that we were in trouble as it related to American business was the March 2009 decisions related to Chrysler's debt. Once we abrogated 800 years of common contract law and rejiggered the debt of uh, the debt holders and, and favored the unions and you can say it's right or wrong. It doesn't matter. You had 800 years of law to back you up. Mm-hmm. And if you really study the law, as I did at Harvard, uh, Cicero had a great line about the law. We are slaves to the law in order to be free. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the society, and this is pretty topical because of what's going on right now in this election, ultimately, the society is at its freest, and you can maintain your republic as long as everyone is subordinate to the rule of law. If people start to become favored relative to the rule of law, and it's sort of a disaster. Well, do, yeah, we'll get, let's get to that. Because, so, uh, so, so just to finish up, yeah. I'm now, okay, this guy is doing things business-wise. He's anti-Wall Street. He's anti-business. Um, he's uh, he's uh, this whole nonsense with you can build it and Elizabeth Warren, who's, I think, the, one of the most dangerous people to economic growth in the society is Elizabeth Warren. I mean, we have to really be worried about her because she has some populist appeal due to her rhetoric. Uh, but she really doesn't understand how things work, and she's going to endanger the society with excess regulation in the capital markets. But, but back on this, I said, okay, i got to get active. So um, I started the process of trying to figure out who was going to run against uh, President Obama. And I started the SALT conference, which I don't think you've attended. Yeah, but I know all my colleagues have been. All your every, colleagues I'm, have been I'm not lucky so. enough to go. Okay, I get to go to the wine party. Yeah, the wine party in Davos, right? So that's one of, one of my ideas. But but the SALT conference is we are now losing our business. And I write about this and hopping yeah, in hopping over the rabbit hole. We're going from Which we should mention is called hopping over the rabbit hole. Hopping over the rabbit hole. It was a story about us about to fail and go out of business at Skybridge and how we hopped over that failure and turned it into a reasonably sized company. Mm. And so in the story is pain, 
self-consciousness, desperation, teeth grinding. I have a lucite block now that I have to put in every night when I go to sleep. And I really wanted to write an honest story so that if someone picked it up that was an aspiring entrepreneur or a young uh, student, they could look at it and say, okay, this guy's telling a real story. It's not a magazine glossy where he sanitized his life and he's trying to pretend sure. that it was better than it actually but was. Can, let me ask you. So thinking yeah. about, I mean, you were an early supporter of Barack Obama. Yeah. And, you know, you you jumped out into this adversity you you of the financial crisis. You actually managed to create a, a pretty successful business. You've got, what, 13, not 13, 12 yeah, billion, 12. billion under management. management. You've got this conference you, everyone wants to go to. If you, if you talked to me to. a year ago, it was about 13.1, but now it's 12.3. But, but that's yeah. despite these... Yeah. These policies that you say are destructive. I mean, how do you square fantastic that? For us. You've done really well. No, 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 fantastic for us. You have to understand something that the the left. This is the great irony of left leaning uh, policies. Absolutely fantastic for asset holders. Unbelievable for the wealthy. Uh, the, in a left leaning society, if we continue to lurch to the left, but isn't it mostly Fed monetary policy? Yeah, but it's all of it. Because see, here's what happens: is you have to finance the entitlement spending, and you have to finance the EBT and all the governmental benefits. And so you, you, you have the reserve currency, so you jam the interest rates down to zero, and the top 1% to 3% of the people that own the assets are going to do phenomenally well in that environment. If you're going to over-regulate industries and you're going to stop the disruptive process, so as an example, to start Skybridge today, it'd be impossible for me. Uh, the 41-year-old version of me into 05 started Skybridge with two people plus myself, total of three. Today, to start Skybridge, you'd need the first nine people to be lawyers. Compliance. No question. And then you'd have to stay regulatory compliant, and then you wouldn't be able to get over the hurdle. And so the f- weird irony of everything is that the more they layer on the regulation, the better for Skybridge, the better for Morgan Stanley, the better for these companies because they can supply the lawyers to deal with the regulation. The disruptors, uh, which makes your nation stronger and more competitive, and the people that can come in and knock Skybridge out of business, they can't get there. The barriers of entry are too high. This is the great irony of what most left-leaning politicians don't understand. In the process of trying to make people safe, they forget the fact that there's no safety in the world. Uh, the world's unfair. John Kennedy said that life is unfair. You didn't pick your your uh, family. I didn't pick my family. Life is unfair. Mm. And the world is not safe. And so if you're looking for the government to make the world too safe, you're guaranteed to slow down the growth in the system. And if you slow down the growth in the system and then you lose the aspirational opportunity for the working class families and the middle class. And so... For me, I grew up in what I would call an aspirational working class family. My dad said, hey, I'll get up at 310. I'll go to work till 310 p.m. But you're going to study when you get home. You're going to have a meal. You're going to study. And you're going to go on to hopefully go to a really good school someday. And you're going to enter the upper class. And so that aspirational working class is now becoming the working poor. So I did great under Obama. But the middle class got crushed. And the working class annihilated. And you can look at the data. The data, you know, you've got 60% increase in youth unemployment for the African Americans, 9.1% drop in disposable income since 2006 for the average middle class person. I can give you every statistic you want. You can look at all the barometric pressure readings. Rich are doing phenomenally well. Poor middle class are getting blown out. How do you then, okay, then why are you 
deciding then to vote for, to, to, to help Donald Trump, who's going to reverse all those things that have been such a boon for your business? Well, I mean, and how will he do well, it? How would he, well, well, well I mean, first of all, if the society is doing better and the middle class is widening out and the lower class or working class, whatever you want to describe it, feels some level of aspirational opportunity for themselves or their children or grandchildren, we live in a better society. The social contract is re-knitted together more fairly. Um, I don't want to live in a bob-wired compound in a McMansion with security guards while my neighbors are suffering. And so, so if you tell me that he's eliminating carried interest, uh, but he's also going. We have to tackle Dodd Frank. We have to tackle the Department of Labor fiduciary what does rule. Carried interest do for? I mean, if you're investing in hedge, hedge funds, Car- carried interest happens? is a fallacy for the hedge fund industry because basically, for your listeners, what is carried interest simplistically? is that uh, as my capital rolls in, as my, okay, so I, I have a, a dollar in my fund, I'm charging one in 20, I make 10%. Okay, so now that dollar's gone to a dollar 10, I get two cents of it. Mm-hmm. I'm able to just leave it in my fund. I don't have to pull it out and get taxed at ordinary income. I can leave it in the fund, and now it can grow as if it's capital alongside of the fund because it's a carried interest on the contract that you and I entered into where you're allowing me to get 20% of the profits off your capital. So, so the elimination of that will uh, and cause it's taxed as a capital gain, rather taxed than as a capital as ordinary gain. income, right? Okay, so, so say twenty percent versus thirty-eight or whatever. Yeah, it well, it's actually forty-three point four if you put in the Obama right. tax, right, right, for the Medicare, yep. the Obamacare tax. Obamacare. So, so it's very important for people to understand is that that is really good for private equity uh, because they have longer-term holding periods and all of that stuff is carried mm-hmm. interest. But it's not necessarily that good for hedge funds because if you're doing a lot of trading. Uh, what you know about the tax code is that's coming to you in short-term ordinary income gains. So, so the great irony is we hate the hedge funds, man. And I'm personally in the holy trinity of hatred. And let me explain to you why. Because I'm a hedge fund manager. I'm in the media. I host a show called Wall Street Week on the Fox of Business course. Channel. And I have a political affiliation. So we hate our politicians. We hate Wall Street. And, you know, unfortunately, we hate members of the media. And so I'm in the holy trinity of that hatred. And I sort of feel Triple like- Triple hate. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I sort of figure like we have to dial this nonsense down. In fact, Wall Street and the economy and Main Street are doing their best when Wall Street and Main Street are in simpatico and sympathy with each other. When there's a symbiotic relationship between Wall Street and Main Street and capital is flowing to small businesses, which it's not now as a result of Dodd-Frank, and community banks are growing and they're lending to the uh, mom-and-pop shops in your town in Connecticut that you live in, then you've got a real burgeoning economy and you've got unbelievable opportunity. But if you're going to over-regulate the society and try to make the society too safe, uh, it's going to create a disaster and it's going to shorten up the ability to create jobs. Let me just say one more thing, okay, uh, uh, for your listeners. The country that can fire the most people will hire the most people. And so you have to never forget that. So if you want to burden all of these businesses with all these labor regulations, they're not going to hire the incremental employee. In France, if I want to hire somebody and they're not doing the job and they're loafing on the job, it takes me three years to get them out of the, out of the firm. And so therefore, 25% unemployment in France Skybridge, uh, can't hire anybody. in Paris? I'm not no. going to expand in Paris, but I, I opened an office right after Brexit in London. I think the Brexit is going to be a major opportunity for Great Britain and, and the United Kingdom and a major opportunity for the world, seismic opportunity for the return of self-governance 
and a removal of the process of big, heavy-handed bureaucrats trying to decide what makes sense as it relates to capital allocation and behavior. And so we have to get away from that if we want to grow. And we have to be not fearful of creating that disruption in an economy, uh, what Schumpeter called creative destruction, that will lead to unbelievable growth and unbelievable innovation. So back on the point about politics, never got involved, could care less. Right. Had no interest in television. First 21 years on Wall Street, never did a television appearance. Or if I did, it was like one in passing. I think I was like going to a Met game and said hello to somebody on Channel 7 or something like that. I went on television because my business was dying. I created the SALT conference, or not me, my team, yeah. because my business was dying. And I had to get on my front part of my foot as opposed to my heel to try to protect myself and the families that I was responsible for at Skybridge and my own family. And so we did a lot of out-of-the-box sort of things. And then we bought Citibank's business, and we built that into our yeah. firm, and then we grew it. So let's talk about the hedge fund business. But that's how I got into That's politics. how you got into yeah. So Obama's uh, rise to the presidency, which has led to this, what I would call this great stagnation for the middle and lower class, which could potentially continue here. We have to be very careful. Uh, led me to become more activated as a Republican financier. I didn't want to ever. And run you didn't for admi- you didn't initially back Trump. You were behind Rubio. No, 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 no. I was Jeb Scott Walker. I was not. Walker, I was National right. Finance Chair for Scott Walker. So uh, near the dodo bird in the Museum of Natural History, there's a picture of me. It says National Finance Chair Scott <laughs> Walker, now extinct. And then uh, Scott came out of the race in September of last year. Very smart of him to do that. He looked at the tea leaves, didn't think he could win. I gravitated to Jeb because I know the family. I know George Mm -hmm. Herbert Walker, who we were just referencing. A lot of my clients were with Jeb. Jeb's a very likable guy. He was a consultant at Lehman Brothers when I was there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think Jeb is a very effective governor and a very good administrator. But Jeb, unfortunately, and if Jeb's listening, I, I know he'd have to agree with me. For whatever reason, his style may have worked in the 1990s as a political candidate, but was not apropos for 2016. We have a disrest and a symptomatic problem in the country right now. Uh, and what's really weird about what's going on, it's so surprising because of the diffuse information provided by Reuters and other places, you would think everybody would be in touch. But we have, we've got a culture of elitists that really don't know what's going on in the middle of the country. And, and can I tell a quick story about this? Because sure. I, am a, I am an elitist, and I want to explain to your listeners why. Harvard Law School, Tufts. 100%. T-U-F-T-S. So, there you go. Okay. And I go, I go to Harvard Law School. I'm now at Goldman. I'm inside all of these great salons of learning, and we're all self-important. And I'm at the museum. It's September of 2010. And uh, CNBC is asking me to uh, ask a town hall question to President Obama. This is a few weeks before the midterm elections. Mr. President, it's good to see Anthony. Good to see you. Well, we know each other. Mm-hmm. And I said, Mr. President, you know, when are you going to stop? I remember this. Now. Yeah, when yeah. are you going to stop whacking Wall Street with a pinata stick? Now, let me say one thing, okay? If you're an Italian-American, you probably shouldn't use the word whack on live TV, okay, in front of the American president, okay? So that's one strike on me. And then he came back at me with a howitzer, and he basically said Wall Street's terrible, and he elicited all these reasons why. And then the next day, I was lit up by all of these Internet blogs. I also got taken out by Jon Stewart on Comedy Central. Uh, where he said that uh, I was a Jersey Shore cast member, which I thought was funny, and they said he was going to whack me with the stick until all the money came out of me, which I also thought was funny. But 
but the more seminal moment was when I was reading these screeds on these left-leaning blogs, which you should never do, by the way, mm-hmm. but I was doing it, and I was being called a Wall Street elitist. And I was saying, I said, oh, my God, how could I be a Wall Street elitist? I grew up in this middle-class family. My parents didn't go to college. All my buddies are like plumbing. They're laying mm-hmm. cable. They work for Cablevision. I'm not an elitist, but I am an elitist. Because I spent 20 years insulating myself, dealing with super wealthy people, and I lost touch with what was going on in the middle of the society. And so I got involved with some of the military charities. I got involved with some of the educational charities. I brought these people to the SALT conference. And then I started traveling around the United States to get a feel for what's going on. Our inner cities, okay, are in desperate shape. Uh, The educational system is flawed. Uh, the path to creating your own self-dependency is flawed. We've got most of these people on poverty maintenance now from a social contract uh, structure. Uh, the way the welfare system is set up, the, uh, the parents sometimes won't marry so that they can keep the aid coming in to help their children. Uh, and so that's discombobulating as it relates to a nuclear family. I and mean, there's so many of these problems that we could absolutely fix if we had the will to fix them. And so... I got involved. And then I said, okay, I'm going to go with Governor Romney. Uh, Romney ultimately got the nomination. I think Romney's a terrific guy. But again, like George Bush, if George Herbert Walker Bush and Al Gore had a baby, it would be Mitt Romney. But he came pretty darn close. Not really. I mean, compared to Donald Trump, you know, basically dispensing 16 other uh, primary candidates. Yeah, yeah, it was 53-47. In Governor Romney's defense, uh, since 1880, uh, no sitting president has been beaten in a rising economy. Right. Uh, you've, you've had one-termers, but there's usually a recessionary force going on. Right, 92 that, is a great example. Of that, 92 right. is a great example. The, the irony there is that the recession was already over. We were starting the recovery, but there's a lagging effect. You and don't so, feel it. As yeah, a, exactly. As a and so, so he lost the election. Also, Ross Perot entered that race. I mm. think that was also a factor. Sure, sure. Um, but but, if but, you but go our to, system, if you go I mean, to this is 1980. That was a big one. We do have this uh, these expectations for these sort of reality TV type, you know, sporting well, events that, that on, changed on too. the debate and and mm-hmm. that and in, in the debate and in the conversation. But that that has that worked well for Donald Trump in the primary. It's worked less well on the national stage. Uh, no, I see. I, so I would disagree. I think that has worked well. What hasn't worked well is that he is not a politician, and so his verbal acuity and his verbal discipline is not up there with the other politicians. And so what happens is he's prone to malapropisms that a off-the-cuff business guy would be making on a world stage with a gigantic megaphone. Okay, so but but people do like him. He has very high likability. Uh, you know, these 30, 25, I've been to, have you ever been to a Donald Trump rally? I have, yeah. Yeah, they're fantastic. Okay, they're entertaining. Not, not if you're in the media pen and people are yelling well, at you. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Because he's picking on you, you're picking on him. But I'll tell you a little inside baseball. So I'm on the plane with him. Where Mr. Trump sits is at the uh, the dining room table in the state dining room of the plane. And so, uh, and he, he takes all four of those seats for himself because he's always got boxes of stuff. Uh, the reason why you don't find a lot of WikiLeaks emails on him, uh, you could say, okay, because the Russians love him. It's really because he doesn't have email. I mean, he has no email. So right. he's reading things that are printed off from other people. So I'm sitting diagonally across from him, and we're having a conversation as we're flying to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And, uh, and then we're ready to get off the plane, and he has three or four things on a piece of paper. I said, what, what are you doing? He said, oh, that's, that's my speech. I'm ready to go, three or four things. Get off the plane. The first thing he does is he asks the cops where the uh, – he's looking for a Jimmy John's 
He's looking for a Burger King. He likes Kentucky Fried Chicken, and he loves McDonald's. Like the Chicken Supreme mm-hmm. at McDonald's, he loves it, right? So his first move is to take a picture with all the cops and the Secret Service guys, and the second move is to ask these guys, you know, where's the local Jimmy John's? Then we order the fast food so that it's waiting for us to get back on the plane, and then we head over to the whatever the to convention the, uh, rally or whatever, right? yeah. And so he's prone to, because Elton John said this about him, he is the best live entertainer in history that can't sing or play a musical instrument. So he electrifies a crowd, and then as he feels the energy of the crowd, he starts going in that direction, okay? And so this is during the nominating process. This is even post-nomination process, and so you see he's tightened up now with these uh, teleprompters, and in the beginning, and this make me laugh, and if he was listening to this, he would laugh, wasn't great at reading the teleprompter, okay? Now, neither was I. When I first started on Wall Street Week, I was reading like I was in the second grade and squinting and didn't know really what I was saying. And there's a whole way to read a teleprompter, sure. which you probably know. And now he's way better at it, but he still hates it. He really just wants to be he the just guy. Seems, you know? seems like he just can't stick to it. You know, yeah, he just doesn't wants like to. It. Doesn't like it. But here's what he does like. He likes smart people. He likes really solid analysis. He's a great questioner. Uh, he has a really good intuitive instinct about what what makes people tick. Uh, people say that his accountant says he doesn't know the tax code. Well, that's true. He doesn't know the 77,000 pages of the tax code, but he understands the dynamic of motivation and incentive in a tax code. He also understands, which I understand, uh, which I think is very, very true about taxes, is that taxes are a price for services. Uh, so when you're using them as a social policy instrument to co-opt or uh, influence behavior, they have exogenous effects. They have a doctrine of unintended consequences that take place. And so what we've tried to do on his economic team, which I know you know I'm a part of, yeah. is we've tried to think about the simplification process of the code, but also line them up with the services of what people are looking for for their government, yeah. as opposed to overcomplication and over-lobbying and all of the self-interest and uh, self-dealing well, I mean, that's nonsense what, that takes what, place. Look, I mean, we don't know what the the results. We obviously were a week away from the the election. Mm-hmm. Are oh, you? He's going to win. Okay. So I hope you'll invite me back. If he loses, you can dunk me here at Reuters in Times Square. Okay. If he wins, you can invite me back and say, okay, why did you say that? Are you like Joe Namath at Super Bowl three, or why do I say he's going to? I I don't. I'm not saying he yeah. won't win. I mean, I no, I, I think you yeah. know, having covered Brexit, the Colombian referendum, anything mm-hmm. can happen. I guess if he doesn't win, what, do you think what what kind of a concession speech would he give? A good one. I mean, is he going to give them? Will he be? Are we going to have to deal with all this, you know, illegitimacy? I think you should look to the Iowa concession speech. Uh, It was short. Uh, It was to the point. It was Mm -hmm. very congratulatory. Ted Cruz won the hundred percent. Okay, this guy is a competitive athlete. Okay, so he's a little older at seventy, but this guy loves to play golf, and he's a competitor. And if he loses a golf match, he's a gracious loser. Uh, He's a good sport. You know, that's an old-fashioned term, but that's what Donald Trump actually is. He's a good sport. So he'll, he'll give a gracious speech. Uh, I think his movement doesn't die. I think if you and I were analyzing the future of Republican Party politics, uh, the establishment never Trumpers, if they think the 14 and a quarter million self-identified Republican voters that voted for Mr. Trump the most in Republican history are going away. They are not going away. They're going to need to find a galvanizing candidate, somebody that can knit that coalition. But doesn't, Trump doesn't strike me as a guy who wants to then run a movement. I mean, he's a businessman. He's, not, he's more he's pragmatic. Not, I, I, don't, I don't think he's going to run a movement, but I think he's at a stage in his life 
where he's going to want to be a part of the process. I think he's very, very worried about the country. Uh, this is a guy that had a phenomenal life, okay? You're flying around on planes. You've got houses everywhere, some of the be- most beautiful real estate in the world, some of the best golf courses, and a guy that loves to play golf. Uh, all this guy had to do was ride himself out into the sunset. He could have protected himself and his family. Uh, and that's what a lot of the corporatists are doing, right? They, they want to be tight with the government. Uh, their PR people tell them, don't say anything bad about the government. They could come at you now with the DOJ, the IRS, all these uh, uh, agencies. Well, what about you? So, I mean, you've got a hedge fund business and yeah. you've got pension funds that are, you know. I don't really I have mean, a lot of pension funds. Well, and I probably won't yeah. because of my views, my political yeah, views. Yeah, I mean, what, what, if, what, what blowback yeah. have you gotten as a result of being part of this campaign? Well, I get a lot of the Hill bullies on Twitter. They light me up like you can't believe, you know, all the excoriating nonsense. I get that. I have some clients that have said, hey, listen, I don't like your views and uh, uh, I don't like Mr. Trump. We've done a masterful job in the country of demonizing both of these people. And so you and I know each other a long time. You never hear me demonize her. Uh, Do I question some of these business practices that she transacted? You have to. They're primary news sources. They're front page news, what she's doing. So, but I'm not questioning her and demonizing her and telling you she's a two-dimensional person. I think one of the qualifications for president is judgment and temperament. And she's accusing Mr. Trump of not having good judgment and temperament. And we're doing the same thing to her. But I don't want to be in the demonizing business. I want to be in the battle of ideas business and discussing right. policy. Okay, and so she, her policies are going to crush the people that I grew up with. Her policies are going to hurt the clamors on Long Island. Her policies are going to put small businesses out of business. There was a uh, 1992 Wall Street Journal editorial by George McGovern. Do you remember? Of course. Senator George McGovern, a great senator. I think he was from North Dakota, ran for president in 72. When he retired from the Senate, he had a dream of building his own bed and breakfast. And so you can Google this if you're out there. George McGovern, Wall Street Journal, 1992 editorial. And he wrote a very beautiful editorial about his experience of failing in his bed and breakfast. And what did he say? He said, my God, I spent 30 years in the Senate building these regulations and health care and labor and codes and fire codes and all of this sort of layers and layers and layers of what I thought were protecting consumers and workers and all of these people. And it had the opposite effect because this layer of regulation crushed my little bed and breakfast. I couldn't stay compliant with all of it. It wasn't necessarily making any of the end users safer or benefiting the workers. And let's face it, the workers are not being benefited if they have no jobs. So if you've, you've over-regulated me out of work, and his irony was, it was a confession. He basically said, my God, if I had only had this real-time practitioner's experience uh, before I put all these codes together, I would have recognized that we were crushing these small businesses. And, that, and that's what's going on right now in the, in the, in the society. So, so for me, I get lambasted. For me, I get uh, some people will redeem on me. For me, I've got my liberal friends, particularly in these liberal salons in New York, that I've ruined my reputation and people are going to remember that you were working for Adolf Trump or, I mean, uh, uh, Donald Hitler. And I, it's a bunch of nonsense. The guy is nothing like that. Uh, and nor do I believe Secretary – when people tell me that she's the worst person on the earth and all this stuff, I don't – hey, look, I'm sorry. I know right. her. She's not the worst person on the earth. She's a public servant. I do think we can look at the facts of what's going on and say, okay, that sort of doesn't make sense if you're going to serve the public to operate in the theater uh, the way you're operating with the way the influence and the money is trafficking. Okay, so the American people need to make a decision if they want that in the White House. 
But here's what the problem is. We're going to make these decisions based on emotion. We're, and we're going to make these decisions based on our social clique. And so if we're in college, I can't say I'm for Trump. I'm going to get shamed out of the college. We've got these safe spaces over here. And Do you think that, his, though, that might benefit? name could that, be offensive to I mean, people. there is definitely, I mean, certainly in certain quarters, as you say, the salons of Manhattan, um, where, you know, people won't, aren't actively supporting Trump because they feel it might be bad for their social status. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that'll favor Trump in the sense that when he walk, when people walk in, I mean, this is my thought is they'll, yeah. they'll no basically question. people who, who won't admit it will actually no vote for Trump. I will, I will and I don't know if that works you. the other way around with Hillary. I would say this to you that this is the, you know, I grew up in a middle-class town, but it was also a wealthy town, Port Washington on the oh. perimeter of Port Washington has a lot of wealth. In fact, it, it's the East Egg of the Great Gatsby. Mm -hmm. Big, beautiful mansions up on the water. But there's a middle-class middle Italian community, Irish community. There's an African-American community there. And so the people I grew up... And remember, I live out there. So I you still live, live, yeah? Yeah, I live two miles from my folks. I never bought into the city or all the social status nonsense of it. And so I'm still anchored to my hometown and all these Italians that I grew up with. And this is the first time... Uh, since I've been voting, which is in 1984, is my first ability to right. cast a presidential vote, that everybody in the local bar, the clamor, the lawyer, the banker, the small business owner, the bicycle shop owner, my buddies that are uh, uh, electricians or working for Cablevision, they're all voting for the same person. Okay, and so that's a sort of weird thing. it's not thing. Hillary Clinton. It's not Hillary Clinton. No, they, they're very dissatisfied with the over-promises and the under-delivering of a control-based, top-down uh, governmental approach to an economy. They're very, very distant. They're over-regulated. I once said to an official in the White House, visiting the White House, Robert Wolf is a good friend of mine. He let me go to the White House. Maybe it was a mistake for Robert Wolf. I hope they still like him. But I was sitting in the, in the White House in the East, I'm sorry, the West Wing, and I said to one of the economic advisors, I said, why don't we play undercover boss? You put a hat on, you come with me, meet me on Long Island Railroad, I'll pick you up in a nondescript car that I'll rent, and we'll drive around, we'll go to small businesses. You're a public servant. Let's go to the local deli or the local auto glass shop and say, hey, how's Obamacare working for you? How are all these new labor regulations working for you? Uh, what happened? Why did, why did you have 13 employees take, take you up on that it? were on health care, but they're no longer on health care because the health care premiums have gone through the roof? So did, he, did you no, take Of course them? not. No. I can't do that because they, they're in a circuit. And we're playing the politics now based on emotion. We're playing the politics based on who has the most swag and who can read the Jimmy Quim Kimmel tweets better than the other person. We're playing the politics now in a way that's going to really, really put a hurt on the country. And so we've got to stop that. We've got to find people that are going to focus on policy and they're going to try to explain to people. So I had this conversation with Mr. Try. I said, man, if I was running against you, I'd be like little Anthony and the Imperials, right? Because I'm like five foot four without my my lifts on, right? So I'd, say, I'd be like, oh my God, he'd be calling me Little Anthony or Small Marco or whatever, right? But you know, what I would want to be known as is policy, Anthony. Okay, you can pick, pick on me, you can pick fun of my personal matters, my physical characteristics, but let's focus on the policy. Because right. the only thing that's going to save us and solve our problems are the policies. And I'll, and I'll ask you a rhetorical question. If you know the answer to this, you'll help me with my life. Tell me the politician that you've interviewed or you've saw on TV or read about that has a 25-year plan. Anybody you know of? Not in this country, no. Okay, 25-year plan on infrastructure, 25-year plan on education, 25-year plan on how we're going to re-diagram the Pentagon. 
and reset the national security footprint. Yeah, I'm afraid you have to go to Beijing for that kind of a yeah, response. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Or and Singapore. So, okay, that may be the case. And so you know, and I'm a big student of Lee Kuan Yew, and I have an enormous amount of respect for him. But he would still take our cards, and so sure. would the, the Chinese would sure. still take our cards because we have the best legal system, we got the best university system, uh, we've got very good policymakers in the country. We've got terrible politicians. I don't like the politicians. I would say. If I could bring a case to the American people, I would indict the entire political class. I think the baby boom generation of the United States, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats, have failed the country. Uh, and they have a reckoning coming because what they did was, and here would be my list pendants if I was, and you were the grand jury and I was presenting the case, I'd say, listen, we racked up $20 trillion of debt. Uh, we prosecuted two wars, probably put between 2 and $4 trillion at risk there. Who knows? Mm-hmm. We killed countless number of American lives. 80, 70, 90,000 people were wounded, not to say the post-traumatic stress that went to that. None of us feel any safer. The economy's not growing. Uh, we can talk about trade if you want, because I've really focused on that. I know a lot about the trade situation in the U.S. and the unfairness of the way Mr. Trump's policies are being portrayed by the media. And so, so what are we doing? Okay, we're losing the country. Okay, we're, we're shrinking the middle class and we're causing some hopelessness and de- desperation for the working poor. How can we do that? We're, the, we're, the, we're the, the richest, most successful country in the history of the world. We've got 6% of the world's population. We're 24% of the world's GDP. How are we doing that? We're doing that because we've got people that are focused on two, four, and six-year election cycles, and we've got people that have lost touch with the reality of the people that they're trying to serve. All right, we're going to have to wrap it up, but we're going to leave it on that. The baby boomers have screwed everything up. Disaster. Right? That's a, that's a, Can that's I a, use the Trumpian word? They have been a huge, huge disaster, disaster. Well, on both sides. We're going to talk after the election. Let's okay, catch you, back. You, yeah, let's yeah, catch you, up again. Me after, back? Yeah, I'll invite you back. I mean, yeah, and if I'm wrong, you can publicly dunk me. And if I'm wrong, it'll be a shame for the country because at the end of the day, he's 70 years old. He doesn't really care. He, he's not beholden to any of these special interests. He's a disruptor. He's got really smart people around him. And uh, we can fix a lot of these problems, and we can take a longer-term horizon because what is he going to do? He's going to run again. He'll be 74. He's going to fix the problems, and he's going to talk to people in a way where they're going to get it. And there's one other thing he'll do. He'll inspire people. He'll create hope. Uh, Even though uh, President Obama is a great orator, there's a lot of hopelessness out there right now, and you can feel it in the Bernie Sanders support, and you can certainly feel it at a Donald Trump rally. Well, thank you, Anthony. Thank you. I appreciate appreciate it. Thank you. Like I said, Anthony sure can talk, and he's not afraid to speak his mind. We will bring him back after the election at some point, unless, of course, he winds up running the Federal Reserve or something for President Trump. That's it for now. We'll be back after the election to take stock of the aftermath. This podcast was produced by Bethel Habte and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter at BreakingViews and at Rob Cox. Thanks for tuning in and adios. 